Almighty God, we thank you for your presence in this place. And we say, Lord, our hearts are prepared. We're ready to receive your word. Holy Spirit, will you speak to us? Will you teach us? And more than just to teach us, will you enable us, Lord? And please be with me as I declare this and be with my brothers and sisters also, whether seated here or listening in to this recording. Lord, let your spirit just move powerfully in us and in our lives. And we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This evening we are coming into the final You Have Heard I Say to You teaching. We have been traveling through this journey and over the past few sessions, that's what we have been learning. And just to give a little recap, you remember that Jesus actually said that we must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. What does it mean for us to do that? And he gives illustrations, he gives examples, and he teaches through. And if you were seated on that mountaintop, I think we would be sort of listening with our mouths open, like, how am I going to be doing this? Thank God for the Holy Spirit. Amen. And Jesus also says that this is the way I fulfill the law. I give you the correct interpretation as opposed to what the Pharisees would have been teaching you. This is the right way to look at the intent, and this is the right way that you should apply. And as you want to apply the law, we also realize that the fulfillment of the law can be found in one word called love. And now we come to a final example where it involves neighbors and enemies. But as we look at this passage We ask ourselves, is it really about neighbors or enemies? Because by the time it comes to a summary statement, Jesus actually talks about the Father. And if we know that He is our Heavenly Father, then we are then sons and daughters. So interestingly, I may have started, or we might look at this passage and say, well, it's about neighbors and enemies. But right at the end, we will realize it is about fathers and sons. The summary statement can be found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So as I've mentioned to you, the issue of love gets mentioned once more in this segment. Love fulfills the law. The Spirit of the law is always about love. If we remember, the law is not to give Israel a bunch of do's and don'ts to to burden them. The law was given for Israel's good. If we understand the word love, love means to act for the good of someone else. And that's why if we understand how to live out God's commandments, remember in the epistle it reminds us that His commandments are not burdensome. If we understand that it is always about His love. Now, as we try to work out this love, as love is practiced, as we will look at in a while, the result is thus growth and maturity and perfection. So in this one little teaching, we're going to see Jesus give that final illustration. And this final one sort of encapsulates the essence of the law that is love. It will affect how we view and how we treat one another. And I believe if we can get this right, everything will flow out of this. But first, we have to ask that question which is so important. Who is my neighbor and who is my enemy? 
And so let's back up to the first verse of this entire passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. And if you have your Bibles open, we're going to work through it part by part and get back down to where we first started in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Chapter 5, verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What we've been doing is each time we look at this one phrase of what the people might have been taught or what they have been hearing through tradition, we want to look at the Old Testament reference. Now, we can find this very simply, that first phrase, you shall love your neighbor, is quoted from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which reads, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So obviously, the Pharisees, when they were teaching this little thing called loving your neighbor, they are quoting from the Old Testament. But they added one phrase, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, interestingly, we can't find these three words in the Old Testament, it's not found in the law. God does not say, thou shalt hate your enemy. And so, because we can't find it, it is very likely inferred from some other passages that we find in the law. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 to 6, talking about the Ammonites and the Moabites, in verse 6, it is declared, you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. It doesn't say that you have to hate them, but somehow there's something that's mentioned about them and it doesn't sound very positive. Another reference in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 19, talks about the Amalekites, where God says, when you get in, you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And so these were Israel's enemies. So obviously, to blot someone out means we don't think very kindly of them or we don't treat them very well. Psalm 139, verse 21. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? In other words, anyone who does not believe in God comes against God. The psalmist says that, well, anyone who comes against you, then I will hate them. So these are all verses that sort of suggest that the enemy is to be hated. And I suppose the, the Pharisees of old would have put all these things together to say, well, let me just summarize this for you. You are to love your neighbor and thus you are to hate your enemy. Now the question, of course, we still have to answer is, but who is my neighbor? It's very important because how we see our neighbor will then define how we define who is not our neighbor. And so in their trying to interpret this command to love the neighbor, they sort of gave themselves some parameters that if I know how to define who my neighbor is, then anyone who's not my neighbor would thus be considered my enemy. Now, as a nation, Israel, of course, it was easy to say, well, if you belong to our nation, and later it became the Jews, it was either the Israelites or the Gentiles. There were only two groups of people. It was us or it was them. Now, you extend that thought a little bit more, then it became, well, uh, those who 
agree with me, have the same set of values, if we stand on that same position, then we are neighbors. But if you do not agree with me, you take a differing position, then I suppose you would not be my neighbor. If you are part of the nation of Israel, if you agree with the same things that I agree with, then I call you my friend. Now, even in our context, we do that, right? If you don't agree with me, I say, I don't friend you. Well, little children are like this, right? So it extends then, it, then this person will be considered a friend vis-a-vis someone who does not agree with you or comes against you, then he will be considered an enemy. So can you see? If I can define my neighbor, presumably this person will be a Jew and you agree with me and you're called a friend. I will thus love this neighbor. But if you fall outside this circle or these parameters, then I will then hate this person or this group of people. Now, this sounds interesting and this sounds correct, but over time, this kind of a thinking became very nationalistic. It became very exclusive. Meaning to say, you know, if, you, if you're part of us, then this is it. Then if you're not, then you are an outcast. Even worse, it became very prideful. It became narrow-minded, inward, selfish. So from a national Israel point of view, that was how they became. They closed their doors. Now if you extend this to interpersonal and casual relationships, this would result in fractions, in party lines, in religious positions, in cliques. You have an us versus them mentality. So can you see how this whole teaching sort of spiraled downwards and within their society became fragmented, family relationships became strained, marriages became broken, Why? Because of this very simple thinking. If you don't agree with me, then you are against me. If you're not my friend, then you become my enemy. And if you're not my neighbor, then I won't love you, therefore I have to hate you. And this even became applied to casual relationships. When we understand this, then we begin to see why. Perhaps that was the reason Jesus selected the previous illustrations of anger, of murder, of lust, of adultery, where it was every man for himself and using the law to justify themselves that in their minds they are not breaking the law, but they are actually keeping it. Because if you are not my neighbor, then you are an enemy. And an enemy is anyone who opposes or disagrees. So if a husband disagrees with a wife, guess what? They became enemies. If a parent disagrees with a child or the children with the family, then they became enemies enemies, or schoolmates, or colleagues, or bosses. Can you see how dangerous this can be if we get the wrong idea from the start and become exclusive and become inward? The word neighbor comes from the Greek plesion. And the word plesion comes from a root word that really means close, near, or of some proximity. And that's why you have the English word neighbor. Okay, nigh. To draw nigh means to come close. And the second word just means an inhabitant or a dweller. 
So someone who is dwelling close, so the one next door to your home who dwells next to you becomes now called your neighbor. This is an interesting picture. We know the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And this parable was given as an answer to a question that was asked by a lawyer who was trying to justify himself, where he asked this question, and who is my neighbor? He was trying to justify himself. And if you know the background now, you have a better understanding, right? Because he was probably loving some people and excluding the others. And he wanted Jesus to sort of confirm for him how you define neighbor, what we have just been going through in the past few minutes. And Jesus told this story, and you know, a man was traveling and he was hit along the way and he was injured. Two guys walked by, one is a priest and one is a Levite. They do nothing. But finally, there was a Samaritan that walked by. Now, you know this parable very well. And I'm sure you have heard many sermons about this. But if I look at this context, and you and I know that Jews and Samaritans, by definition, were they neighbors or were they enemies? They were enemies. And so they would have nothing to do with one another and they stayed from each other as far as possible. Remember, neighbor means someone that's close. But if you're an enemy, then you're opposite of that. That's why the Jews and the Samaritans who have nothing to do with each other, they would distance themselves. Then we see the priest and the Levite. They were both Jews, but if you look at the text, it says that they chose to pass by on the other side. Now, they were walking along and they were on the same side where the man was lying. Now, of course, we can say, oh, they can't dirty themselves. They are ceremonially, they need to keep themselves clean. You know, we've heard all these teachings, but you realize instead of going near to this man, they drew far away. They went to the other side. They distanced themselves. They moved further away. But on the contrary, the Samaritan, who was supposed to be the one that should keep the distance, went to him. He moved nearer and closer to him. And not just to get close to him, he loved the Jew by taking care of him, doing good to this person who is regarded as an enemy. This word neighbor depicts nearness or drawing close to someone. You know, in countries further away, if you look at farmlands, farmers, their only neighbor might be miles away. They're not very close, but they're still considered neighbor. By distance, it's considered far away. But they are the nearest that you can find, and they are called literally neighbors. As I had that impression within my mind, I was thinking, that's quite true, isn't it? There's a principle that is there that we can learn. If we would allow someone into our space, does this person not become our neighbor? Even if he was an enemy coming into our space, and if he's nearby, then technically, he is now considered a neighbor. It's the way I look at this person. Is the way I feel about this person that has to change. Now, we may not be very comfortable with someone coming into our space. But do you know, 
that the opposite is also true. That instead of waiting for someone to come into our space, if I would extend my space, then everyone now becomes a neighbor. Would this be an interesting thought for us to consider, right? The question is, do we think like that? Or are we more like the Pharisees, where we tend to draw very close and very clear boundaries? And especially today, where we have lost our kampong spirit, do you realize? Not that I ever lived in a kampong, I must be honest. But because we live in our little high-rise or our own homes and we are usually kept apart from one another, we regard our space very carefully and very preciously. And we tell people, don't intrude into my space. And only those that are approved may come in. And sometimes we may not put it up there, but we might appear to have a sign there that says, you know, trespassers will be shot. We, We don't really want neighbors. And in that, we sort of treat, we don't call them enemies, but we, don't, we treat them not as our neighbors. I think we must think and ask this question. Do you think church has become like that? Where we draw very clear boundaries, where we have our own value systems, we have our own worship styles, we have our own ministries. And it's sad sometimes when you hear ministries talking about one another, that if you don't serve with us, then you are not one of us. If you don't worship in this style, then you are missing something. And we're talking against each other without realizing it, and we become as what we have just described. And we look at each other. We may not call each other enemies, but the question is, do we even treat each other even as neighbors? That was what had happened in the time where they define it so narrowly that once I have my box called neighbor or my circle called neighbor, if you do not fall within it, then you are automatically my enemy. And sadly, even if you are not my enemy, doesn't mean I would consider you my neighbor. And the result is, at the end, apathy and self-centeredness. So Jesus addresses this and He says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you compare a parallel passage between Matthew and Luke, they say exactly the same things. Some people are thinking, you know, is it the same sermon that they were recording? Or perhaps it was at two different occasions. But it doesn't really matter to us because the teaching is both, they are both consistent. The only difference is that in the book of Matthew, it concludes a segment. It summarizes the teaching that would have gone before. But if you get into the book of Luke in chapter 6, verses 27 to 36, It begins that teaching. It starts with love your enemies. And then after it, then it talks about things that we have already explored. Okay, when people ask you, please give. If they land, don't expect them to return and so on. And and it sort of goes right through the entire teaching and it then ends the whole thing. It's like spread out rather than a summary statement. But both are consistent. Both say exactly the same things. 
both also give a description of how one is to love his enemy. The first thing to do, bless them. Whoever is pronouncing a curse on you. Last lesson we learned, let's not retaliate. Let's not even hold back and sort of bite your tongue and don't say anything bad enough. Jesus says, if they curse you, then love them. Bless them back. Okay? Now, if they hate you, that means they don't want to do good things. In fact, they actually wish bad things for you. You are supposed to do good to them. Go and help them. Take an extra mile, even if you have to do that. Now, if they use you, they abuse you, they persecute you, pray for them. This is how you express your love because love is not this affection. I don't think Jesus is saying for us to fall on our feet and not feel beautiful about this person doing all these things or saying all these things against us. Remember, love is an act of the will to desire something good for the other person. Okay, It's not necessarily premised upon a feeling. You may not like this person. You may not like what he says. You may not like how he looks. It does not mean you cannot love. Okay, But if you think, I have to like before I love, of course, that will be easier. Huh? But if you think, I have to like before I love, that's going to be one huge hurdle for you. So get used to this understanding. Loving someone does not necessarily mean having to like this person entirely. As parents, we love our children, yes? Do you always like their behavior? Not necessarily. Can you understand this, right? So can you see love and like? There are different ways to understand that. Okay, let me move on. The New Testament writers pick up on the same theme where Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 12, verse 20 and 21. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Now we've already learned what it means to heap coals of fire. Okay? It's not to call down fire. It's actually to look after this person. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12. Paul says, And we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. The apostle Peter says exactly the same things. In chapter 3, verse 8 and 9 of 1 Peter. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, note this context. Huh? When Peter was writing this, he was talking about, look, brothers, Love one another. He was talking to the body of Christ. That means within the body, you and I know, there can be silly talk going. There can be bad words coming out, right? There can be wrong treatment of one another that even if we should do that to each other, we should be returning, not with the same nasty thing, but we have to bless and we have to pray and we have to do good. Now, why did Jesus teach like that? He's saying, look, love your enemies. 
do all these things to them, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He doesn't mince his words. What he is really telling us and the people is that you are children of God. This is expected of you. That you may be doesn't mean that, you know, as you do this, then you become sons. No. You are already children of God so that you may reveal the traits and the character and the nature of your Father in heaven. So don't get this wrong, okay? Don't think that, oh, you know, if I do not bless my enemies and all that, then I'm no longer a child of God. No, 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 no. We are children of God and we have been given this by the Holy Spirit, right? The spirit of adoption by whom we can cry, Abba, Father, we are children, amen? But if we are children, then by the Holy Spirit, we should be able to do this. Because our Father expects it of us. And what our Father expects us to do, He Himself sets the example. Because it says that, For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. And He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. It's expected of us as sons of the Father because He does the same thing. You see, if you and I were to give rain and to give sun, this is probably how we would do it. We would define those that are deserving according to our standards, right? We will say, oh, you good to me. Ah, you were just very good. You answered my phone call. You didn't look away when I smiled at you. I put you into this category and I will shine my sun on you and I'll let my rain fall on you. But if you upset me, ah, then you are outside of that circle and I won't give you sun and I won't give you rain. Let's admit it. Is that true? Very possibly, right? That's how we would categorize people. But here, Jesus says of the Father, God loves all. Remember just now I showed you that if we would be willing to extend our space, then everyone is our neighbor. But if we keep it very narrow to a certain select group, then everyone else that's excluded is not considered our neighbor, becomes an other, and then we will not treat them with that same treatment. God loves all. Is that amen? God loves everyone, all right? And because He loves all, He gives to all. Now, this is what we term as God's common love and common grace. God's grace and His love extends to one and all. And why sun and why rain? This is very important to the society that relies on agriculture, right? So, whether one person is behaving well before God or not behaving well, when the rain comes, both will get it. When the sun shines, both will get it. Now, this common grace and common love, which is extended to all, must be differentiated from God's covenant love for His people. Can you understand this? There's a slight difference that is there. God's love for all humanity. That's this common love, common grace, extended. But for us who are covenant people, I believe there's a difference of His level of love for us. There's a very, very simple explanation or illustration I give to you. 
I love all of you. Say amen lah. But I love my wife. Can say amen also. In case she listens to this recording. Now, I ask you, do I love my wife differently from how I love you? Definitely. I love my children and I love you. But I love my children differently from how I love you. Are you following? It's not a perfect example, but I think it lets you understand something there. That God can love everyone and He can love His covenant people differently. You follow? Those who are obedient to Him and those who are diligent to Him, those who perform His will, there's a different covenantal love that is there. Now, take some time to ponder it. Study that even if you need to. It will be dangerous for us to to blanket God's love as if it's just one word and it means exactly the same thing. See, I can be generally generous, but I can be especially generous to my family. You see the difference here? And you can say, oh, but you're being unfair. I say, well, I'm sorry, it just is. That's it. You say, oh, God, you're unfair. I say, well, no. Do you realize? His grace given to you is totally unfair. So we can't look at God and say it's unfair because He shows as He desires. He gives as He would. And this is how God is. In His seeming unfairness, He is fair. Okay, I want to make this point so that we understand. But God loves all. His common love is extended to everyone. And that's what we see here. And when He withholds, whether it's rain or whether it's sun, and you have seen those accounts in the Bible, right? When he withholds, that is his prerogative. And that is by his instruction. And often if you study more closely, you will see that perhaps for that group of people, the cup of sin has reached its full. Now we don't know when. We don't know how. But it is God who determines. It is God who acts in his judgment at the perfect time because it is only he who knows. Does that make sense? Is everyone okay with this? Now, as I studied this, then I asked this question. Now, if we agree with this, then we could ask, then are we supposed to to call rain and fire and brimstone on, on people that we don't like? Hold that question in your mind, right? But are there groups that do that? That they don't agree with us, and so, you know, we'll call fire and brimstone. Now, oh Lord, send fire on them. Oh Lord, disturb them. But God loves all. Quite a conundrum, right? Was Elijah directed by God to withhold that rain? Or did he do it by himself? And today we can be like Elijah, a man also. And anytime we like, we call weather to change. Are we correct to prophetically declare these things these days? as if God must adjust the weather to suit us. See, as you learn and you get deeper into some of these questions, huh, it makes us think a little bit more. In Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56, Jesus, together with His disciples, visited a Samaritan village and they rejected Him. And James and John, the sons of thunder, asked Jesus, shall we call down fire on them, just like Elijah? And Jesus says, you do not know what manner of spirit you are. 
I wonder if Jesus would look at some of us today and some of our ministries today and ask and say and rebuke with those same words. You don't know of what manner of spirit you are to be doing these things. See, God loves all. And in loving all, God demonstrates His love to all. Now, we are very clear about this. He demonstrated His love by sending His Son to be the sacrifice for the sins of all. And we know from Scripture that while we were yet sinners, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Very clear, Scripture tells us you were alienated. You were enemies. If God had to draw a circle the way we draw circles, you would be outside. Aren't you glad God did not draw that circle? And if He did, He stretched it out right across the entire world. That God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And you and I, we were all included in that. And even people who have not believed yet, who are living decadent life, deviant lifestyles, they are included in this one statement. God demonstrates His love to all. And through this, God invites all. He says, come into my kingdom. The only way into the kingdom is by salvation. You cannot work your way in. It has to be by faith. It must be according to my grace that my Holy Spirit is given to you, that you will be translated out of that darkness into my marvelous light, into a covenant relationship with me. Because it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The unfortunate thing is that not all will respond. But this does not stop God from loving his enemies. And Jesus demonstrated this. He loved his enemies, both the Jews as well as the Romans, the Gentiles. And he was reviled, he was persecuted, he was crucified, and he set the perfect example. And in this same way, we are to love our enemies. We are to love those who oppose us. We are to love those who disagree with us. We have to love those who have a different position, who, who live differently even from all of us. We are to love them. We are to bless them. We are to do good to them. We are to pray for them. And as we have already seen, not all will respond positively or kindly. But, but, some might. And you don't know who this one person or two persons might be. Amen? And we are not called to, to worry about the result. We are asked to be concerned of our response. If we go on in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? What Jesus is saying here is, look, the tax collectors, these guys, you know who these people are. The Jews considered them as traitors. They are like enemies to them because they have sort of gone to the other side to side with the Romans. 
the Romans had a tax collection system, like a, a multi, I hate to use this phrase, but it's like a multi-level scheme. Maybe it's like a Ponzi scheme. And as long as you meet your quota, the Romans were happy. They don't care how you do it. So it opened the entire door to bribery, to corruption. And it was level upon level. And they were so hated. They were considered enemies. Even to a point, although they were Jews, they were treated like heathens and pagans. And Jesus picked these as examples. So you look at them. You say they're enemies, right? They know how to look after their own. They know how to be nice to their own people. Those who are part of the scheme, they will look after. They will know how to protect one another. They will help each other go collect even more money so that they can be rich and be prosperous, although in the wrong way. They know how to look after them. Now, if they know how to look after their people that they love and same thinking, and you only know how to do also the same thing, then you look at each other, same word. You are no different. Sometimes uh, the words of Jesus are very hard to stomach, right? You want to stretch it further? I wrote one line in my notes. I'm no better than an ISIS terrorist? Question mark. Perhaps an ISIS soldier, they know how to look after each other, they know how to fight for the same cause, and they know how to stand together and look out for one another. They can love their own. Now, if that's all I do, that I can also love my own, then that's a good start point, let's be honest. But if both are doing the same, I'm no better than an ISIS terrorist. Who wants to say, ouch? Painful not. But what a realization. What, what are the standards of this kingdom? And if we would be honest again, the sad truth is, sometimes some non-Christians are better than the Christians. They know how to look after those of their own. I wonder if we know how to do that. So if I only know how to love my own or those who agree with me or those who treat me well, then I'm no different from the way the world operates. No different. The only difference is I attend this place called church. They can attend in a different place of worship. I, I huddle in a little thing called cell group and they come together in their uh, pubs. Uh, you know, it's the same. No different. My religious text is the Bible. This is uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. Something like that. Whatever it is, you, you get my point. If we are only loving our own, and that's all, Jesus says, this is not becoming of the Son of the Father. If I only attend like a prayer meeting, I, I, I go for a jubilee day of prayer, I go day of His power, and after that I come back, I sit down, I got no assignment to do, I don't know what else to do, I continue to go for these kind of meetings, then we are no better than anyone else. In Luke chapter 6, the parallel passage, Jesus gives three examples and the same line He uses. What credit is that to you? Oh, this is painful, man. I can't even... Let me apply this to myself, okay? If I teach Kingdom 101 every week diligently and that's all I do, but I do not know how to love my enemies, what credit is that to me? I'm so thankful I'm preaching the words of Jesus and these are not my words. But Jesus is pointing us towards something and He summarizes it with one statement. He says, Therefore, 
you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do you think Jesus knew that whatever he had been teaching would have been very difficult to attain by his audience? I'm sure he knew that. But he's saying, look, this is how my Father is, and this is how we are to live. Now, therefore, be that. Move towards that. That's a summary statement. This is how I want you to be. And when we look at this word, be perfect, to be perfect does not mean to be sinless. To be perfect means to grow towards maturity, to be complete, to be whole. I think that helps us understand this better. Because the moment we say we have to be sinless, we might as well give up. But here the word perfection is tending towards maturity in Christ, completeness in who He is, and wholeness in the things of God. And these are expected for all sons and all daughters of God. We're not just supposed to be sons, technon. Technically, we are sons. We are born, so we become sons. My children, they are sons and daughters. They are technon. But as a father, my desire for them is that they will grow up to be huios, that they will be matured sons and daughters, that they will make good decisions. They'll say things that would be a blessing to the people around them and bring pleasure to myself and to Serene. And I believe this is expected and this is totally in order. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Paul says the same in different words. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. So this is our Heavenly Father. Now, imitate our Heavenly Father. This is what He does. As dear children, now walk in love. Same thing. Our Father loves the just and the unjust. He loves the good and the evil. He loves the righteous and the unrighteous. Now imitate Him, dear children. Grow up in this. When we talk about perfection, we have to ask ourselves then, a theological question as it were. So have we been perfected already in Christ? Aren't we already perfected? Or are we still being perfected? For those, of course, who want the easier way out, will say, well, I'm perfected already, what? So there you go. Those people sitting on a mountain, listening to the sermon, too bad, no Holy Spirit. It was before the cross. But for us who are after the cross, we have been perfected in Christ. Hallelujah. Well, it's not wrong, but I think it's not complete. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, it says that He has perfected us once for all, those who are being sanctified. So can you see? He has perfected those who are being sanctified. So this is where we get confused. So am I perfected or am I still being perfected? Yes, you're both. Now that we have been perfected in Him, we're expected to work out this salvation towards perfection and maturity. Make no mistake, be careful. You cannot do this by the work of the flesh. You, you can't try to do this but you have to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit because it is the Spirit that gives us that adoption that we can cry, Abba, Father. Because if you try to do this in the flesh, you are going to react in the same way as the world. It's natural. We've already explored this. You will revert to exactly the same way and you will hate your enemies. 
But it is in the Spirit that we are enabled to walk upside down, that we will love and walk in the ways of the kingdom to love our enemies. Along the way, you embrace the possibility of suffering, of trials, and of tribulation brought upon us by the ones that we are determining to love. That's the paradox, isn't it? That's the upside-downness of the kingdom. James says and reminds us in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that testing of your faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, this is true, isn't it? You just think about it. You try to love your enemies. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be tough because they are not going to embrace you automatically. But what's the purpose? If you go back to Romans 8, you understand this again. That in our weakness, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groans, with sighs, right? We have no more words. We don't know what else to do already. We are loving. We are doing the best we can. And all things work for the good of those who, who, who love Him, who are called to His purpose, that we might be conformed to the image of the Son. What is that again? Perfection, maturity, completeness. Can you see this? It's, scripture is consistent. Now, as you look at the slide and you're, I'm looking at your faces, it's like, how? I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to discourage you. That's the last thing I want you to do, okay? So will you please smile at me to know that in Christ, we have that hope and we have the Holy Spirit. And that is why I titled this message, Practice Makes Perfect. Now, we are in the midst of, or we just started the Olympics. I mean, look at these guys in the pool, in all kinds of sports, in any arena. They didn't get there by doing nothing. They had to practice, and they want to hit that perfect score. Well, similarly, I wish I didn't have to do anything anymore since I'm already perfected in Christ, amen? How nice if I, if I can just go to church every Sunday and wait to go to heaven. Let me give you some pointers here. The first thing is to remember assignments and trials train us towards perfection. I want to remind you that's what our Keepers Awakening is about, friends. I say this not to offend you, not to hurt you or to upset you, but we can listen to teaching after teaching every week here and not seek the Lord for an assignment. Or we can wait for 3,000 confirmations before we take a step towards an assignment. And I tell you, if you are still waiting, can I, can I gently provoke you to take that first step? Because once you get onto an assignment, you realize how you are perhaps misaligned. And it is true that then you find out that I'm not perfectly there yet. Uh, surprise, surprise. Of course we already know that. But what shows that up? our assignments when we move for the Lord. And sometimes the assignment may not even be something that's out there, out in the mission field. It can be just one person that is a real pain in the neck. And your assignment is to love this person. How well are you doing? Amen? How well are we loving? Maybe the assignment is just to bring this person lunch. Maybe it's to buy this person something. Maybe it's to send a text. Maybe it's just to, I don't know, Something so small. 
But if you will not move on that assignment, then can I suggest you're not being aligned towards what the Lord wants for you. How do we practice? Secondly, be faithful and be obedient in the very small things. Now, this principle is universal. You can apply to anything and everything. But can I urge you to apply this principle, especially in your small, petty disagreements? Don't wait for someone to upset you big time. If someone has already hurt you small time, I know to you it may be very big, but a little thing, let's be honest, okay? Identify it, perhaps it's not really a big issue. Those are small opportunities to bless. Small opportunity to do good and to pray. And I can tell you it will be challenging because your initial reaction, remember last lesson? It is to either strike back or to suppress and try to be a nice person and not do anything already very good. But Jesus says, surprise. Go beyond that. Go beyond that. Surprise even yourself. Start with the small things. Has someone upset you? Is there someone that you disagree with? Start with something that maybe even further away, maybe this person doesn't even know. You just don't agree with this particular group. Why don't you just begin to pray for this person? Begin to bless this group. Amen? Start with the small things. Practice that. Practice that. But before you do that, point number three, you may want to reconsider how you define neighbor and enemy, as I have already gone through with you. If your mindset is stuck in the past, that you are drawing lines, you are making parameters, that if this person steps out of line, I'm cutting this person out, then you will never change. Your mindset will not be renewed. You will not be transformed. You will not move according to the will of your father. You have to reconsider how you define neighbor and enemy. Technically, my dear friends, do you know there's only one enemy? His name is Satan. Plus all his hosts of angels, of course, his fallen angels. And so the people, they are coming against us, the men and the women, these are part of fallen humanity and some may have just been held captive by him to do his will. The Bible reminds us that the whole world is under sway of the wicked one. They are blinded. They may not be aware and they are moving according to their old nature, which we once and we still are struggling with even ourselves. And so these are not really our enemies, if you think about that, right? Technically, it's only Satan that's there. And we have to be aware so that we're not deceived by these. But the question is, are we to hate these? So we don't agree with a certain orientation, the LGBTs and so on. Now, do we love them or do we hate them? Well, we're supposed to love them. The question is, when we pray, do we pray for them or have we been praying against them? In the church, there may be disagreements, but friends, my brothers and my sisters, you are not my enemies. And I hope you don't consider me as yours. We are brothers and we are sisters. Now, some of us may be disobedient in some ways we may not adhere to certain things that the word says that we should do correct we have our own bad habits still paul addresses this in second thessalonians chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle note that person and 
do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Now, don't stop there. All Paul is saying is just distance yourself for a while so this person begins to understand. I hope that he learns that lesson. But our problem is when we do that, we distance far, far and never come back. But verse 15 says, Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. We do the first part very well. But second part, we dare not admonish. You see that? We dare not talk to the person. We dare not come close to talk again. In the church, there will be disagreements. And I tell you, I struggle especially with a theological position and we may hold different views at different points in time of our growth and of our maturity. And today in the church, there are also so many different types of teaching all over the place. But... Let me say this, until and unless we are very clear that this person or anyone is a false prophet or a false apostle or a false teacher, let us be careful with our words and our labels. And personally, I'm wrestling with this because I'm trying to discern and want to know the difference between a false teaching and an erroneous teaching. Do you understand the difference? Have I taught wrongly before? Have I been erroneous at some point in time? You may not want to hear this, but it's going on recording. I possibly may have taught to the best of my knowledge a certain position as I was growing in Christ. Can you accept that? But as I've grown more and I realize and I reflect and I look at some of this and I realize I was wrong in some of these pointers and I make a correction and I teach a different thing now. I hope this is not scaring you because I'm learning that our God is much, much bigger, much, much bigger than one little teacher here. I don't see any of you being heretical and starting your own cult, right? So I'm still okay. So we may have different positions. We are all part of the body of Christ. We don't look at each other and say, you enemy, you enemy, or you leave my ministry, or you leave my church, you no, 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 and then we start to point fingers as one another. No, don't do that. We're all parts of the body. Can you imagine if your, if your left arm is hurting and your right arm is going, chop off the left arm, chop off the left arm, chop off the left arm. No, the right arm is going to be praying, heal the left arm so that together, both left and right arms can lift a heavier weight. Amen? We have to be very careful and, and this teaching has convicted me so much that if I have been guilty, I'm coming before the Lord. I say, Lord, you help me so that I can pray correctly, that I can be a blessing to the body of Christ. In the family, in the workplaces, are these really your enemies? Just because they, they have a difference in opinion, uh, you, you clash because of certain personalities. Are they enemies? They may have a different motivation Maybe their worldview, or very likely their worldview will be very different. Do you even know this person, their upbringing, their hurts, their disappointments? Maybe they have been so devastated that they respond in that way and you happen to be on that path. What if you are the one that prays a blessing? What if you are the one that does good to this person, where this person has never been a recipient of something good? What would happen? Have you thought about that? How big is your space? How big is your heart? How willing are you to extend grace? It all depends how much of that grace 
you have received. Amen? And if you sing amazing grace and abundant grace, would you not extend the same? As you consider all these things, as you look at the small opportunity, this is a very practical tip. Dutifully, first, for a start, dutifully, by the Holy Spirit, ask the Holy Spirit, help me, Holy Spirit. You know why I use the word dutifully? Because we don't want to do it. You can think it. And sometimes, you know, even to think it, you, you, you're like, Ugh. what do you mean bless this person? Prayer, teasing. Dutifully, for a start, dutifully. Ask the Holy Spirit, help me. Ask God to bless them. Don't know what to bless them? Good health, la. wealth, la. abundance, la. prosperity, promotion. Bless them. Bless them with every goodness that you yourself would desire. Bless them. Ask God to help you. If needed, where it's possible, love them through a simple act. Something small. It can be a text. Maybe on a Facebook, some person has upset you. Then you see that post. You don't even want to like the post anymore. Small little thing. Like. You don't laugh. For some people, even just to click that like, also must pray about it. I mean, it doesn't cost you anything. Am I right? That's what I mean by dutifully start with that. Pray for them. Not according to the psalmist's imprecatory prayers. Dash them against the wall. Not that kind of prayers. But pray for their well-being. Pray for their salvation if they're not knowing Jesus. Pray for them to know and encounter God in a personal way. Pray for their healing emotionally, spiritually. And over time, as you do this, practice makes perfect. It becomes easier. And we're praying that it will become second nature. And this will be evidence of one that's being led more and more by the Holy Spirit. This does not mean you will never get upset again, okay? Don't disappoint yourself. Don't discourage yourself. You're hoping that if someone upsets you tomorrow or 10 years down the road, you're going to take it laughingly and happily and skippingly. No, we all have feelings. We all don't want to be hurt. So it doesn't mean you will never get upset again. It doesn't mean that you will never fail in your attempts to love your enemies. You will fail. You will trip every now and then. And that's why I'm so thankful for the parallel passage. Although it's the same teaching, in Matthew it ends, be perfect as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. But in Luke it says, be merciful as your heavenly Father in heaven is merciful. Aren't you thankful that God is merciful? And so as I am practicing to be perfect by the help of the Holy Spirit, God is merciful. And how can I get into His presence if I am not first clothed with the righteousness of Jesus? That I can run to the throne of grace with boldness to find help and mercy and grace in time of need. That's why I'm perfected that I may become perfected. And as a last point, let me motivate you. Jesus says, if you are like the tax collector, you love only those who love you, what reward will you expect? What reward will you get? Hey, do you realize, uh, kingdom got lots of rewards, you know? There are a lot of kingdom rewards. The question is, are we living in a way to receive those rewards? Salvation is free, but rewards is dependent upon how we live. And so if you are looking to that reward, <laughs> it's okay, you know? 
bite that teeth first dutifully and say, Lord, I bless this guy. <laughs> oh, I pray for this one. Rewards coming. Thank you, Lord. I may not see it on this side of eternity, you know, but when I meet with you, may it count. May it count. Hallelujah. See, my friends, practice makes perfect. Don't hope to sit in church, go cell group and attend all the teachings. And if you do not apply this, you think you're going to get better? No way. No way, right? The Holy Spirit is given to us and He's going to guide us. Along the way, we may miss the mark over and over again, but it's okay because our main target, get this, our main target is to love. The right way of loving, to love and to bring ourselves by the Holy Spirit to perfection. And so let's bring this to a close. And I want you to imagine with me as we prepare to pray. Can you imagine how the church, our families, society, and the entire world would change or be impacted if sons and daughters of the kingdom will begin to practice this? And perhaps some of you may have encountered deep hurts and you may need restoration that is found at the cross. After this, I hope that we'll be able to pray with you and for you because if you desire to live according to Jesus' words, then let's encourage one another and let's help one another. So practice makes perfect. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words. Every word is precious not one word is wasted. And we thank you for these verses. They're not easy words for us to listen to, but we need to learn them. Lord, we know also that we fail time and again, but I thank you, Lord, that we have the Holy Spirit. So help us, Lord. Enable us by your Holy Spirit so that we can put into practice, to apply, to live out this word, that we do not just be hearers of this word, but be doers of it. And in that, we continue to grow towards the perfection that you have given to us, that hope in Christ. And we thank you, Lord. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.